The Word of God is our anchor in all times, in any time that we face, and these days are certain days that we need anchoring and hope. So I'm going to ask if you would again turn to Luke chapter 7 and be ready to look at the Gospel of Luke with me. The title of the message today is The King Off Script. The King Off Script. And I want to explain what I mean by that because it needs a little bit of explanation. I'm going to ask you a question first. Have you ever experienced life going off script? Now, typically, each of us has certain expectations about what life should be like and how it should unfold. The to-do list people here, you have a to-do list for your life, and it spans decades. It includes things about the, the time you will enjoy your singleness, to getting married, to having kids, to retirement, and everything in between. Now, typically, we don't plan for things to go bad. We don't anticipate things that will go wrong, but often and typically things do. They go off script. So what happens, friends, when you suddenly find out that you have cancer? What happens if not so suddenly, over long and painful months, your spouse passes away? What do you do when your child suffers in this life and there's nothing you can do about it? What happens when that relationship that you hoped for is not suddenly in front of you anymore? We often experience times when our lives go completely off script. And if we're honest, we tend to think in those moments certain things about God that either he is powerless to have prevented the bad thing from happening, or perhaps he doesn't care. And we know, though, that he can help us, but the, the question that we often wrestle with and the doubt that comes is, will he? Will he? You know, the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, often did not do what people expected him to do. We've been reading Luke and in the chapters 5 through 9, it's a time of great popularity for Jesus. He, in chapter 5, grows in popularity. He calls his disciples. And then in chapter 6, he preaches the, the message, the charter of his kingdom. As Pastor Sam has been sharing with us through Luke chapter 6, those sermons that center around love and acts of mercy and forgiveness and even going to your enemies. So, one might have wondered, what would Jesus do after giving that charge to people? Well, it seems as if he tends to go off script. Suddenly, when people expect him to establish that kingdom, he's going off to the home of a Roman centurion. And instead of going down to the seat of power in Jerusalem, he's going to the backwoods, Galilean area, of a little village called Nain. It gets so confusing in chapter 7 that John the Baptist from prison 
sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you really the one that we've been expecting? If somebody as spiritual and as godly as John the Baptist could doubt the sovereign responsibility and authority of Jesus and as even his identity, then the rest of us certainly would suffer and fall prey to the same doubts. And so my friends, I want to tell you the reality from this scripture today, Luke chapter 7, is that Jesus is always advancing his kingdom. He did not go off script in the times when people started to suspect him of not being the Messiah. Instead, he was doing the very things that he said in his charter message that citizens of the kingdom ought to be doing. We will find today that he never goes off script, but he goes to the people whose lives have suddenly gone off script. And his great authority and his compelling compassion point people toward his kingdom values. And what we will see is this, that Jesus, our Lord, advances his kingdom in our off-script lives through his acts of compassionate power. The outline today is this. We're going to see what the Lord does as he goes into these regions of the centurion home and the widow's uh, son's funeral in Nain. We're going to see the king as he marvels at faith, the king as he is moved by grief, and then a question, how will you respond to the king? All right, let's look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says, after he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. The king has finished his kingdom message the charter, the constitution of what his kingdom is to be like. And we find that he finishes the sermon and immediately goes back to his adopted hometown of Capernaum. It's where he set up his ministry center. He launches out of there to various places around Galilee. And it's from there that he preaches, performs miracles, heals people, casts out demons. All these signs are done to point to his identity and his authority, so that people will submit to him. So as he is entering Capernaum, he is met by a group of elders of the town. This is how the Jews would always set up their structure within their villages or within their towns or cities. They would have a group of men who would typically sit at the city gate, and they would decide judgment about matters. They would also oversee things and how it would work in the synagogue, and how the, the, the worship around the town was, how the people were functioning, how they were doing. So these elders have been sent by someone. And what we find out in verse 2 is that a centurion is mentioned. Now, a centurion is a Roman officer who was stationed in various places around the Roman Empire, and he would typically oversee 100 soldiers. And I say typically because over time, it wasn't a hard and fast 100. But he did oversee a certain number of soldiers who were tasked in that area to establish two things, Roman law and order, and to gather the taxes. So centurions were not typically very friendly with the elders of a Jewish town. But in this case, this centurion is not typical. 
So as the elders meet Jesus as he returns to Capernaum and is walking into town, they report to him certain things about what's going on in the lives in the life of their local centurion. This is what we find out just as background info for this atypical, non-typical centurion. He has a servant who is very sick and even to the point of death. Now, it, it's not unusual for a centurion to have a servant. He would have had a whole house full of servants. But what makes it unusual here is that this one has a servant and he actually cares that the servant is sick and he wants him to get well. So often in Rome, it's recorded by one of their historians that every year the Roman soldiers were told to inspect their equipment and whatever was worn out and useless to throw it away. And then the corollary advice was, and do the same with your servants. This one, though, this centurion did not follow the culture and the prescribed customs of the Roman Empire. He had a heart to care. The word for servant in verse 2 is doulos. You maybe have heard that before, doulos. We're often described in New Testament terms as the doulos of Christ. That means we're the servants of Christ, the slaves of Christ. But what's interesting A little bit further into the story, when the centurion sends some friends to Jesus to intercept him, he doesn't refer to his servant as a doulos. He uses a different Greek word, and that Greek word is pais, P-A-I-S. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly. But it means more a child or even a son. So in this household, the centurion has an affection for this young man, this boy, and regards him more as a family member than he does as a tool to be used. And he's concerned about him, and he sends the elders of the town. Now, why would they go? Well, the centurion is also unlike other centurions because he has a special love for the Jewish nation. That's what the elders report to Jesus. You could see in verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. A couple of things here that are remarkable about this centurion. Centurions typically would have made between 3,750 to 7,500 denarii per year. Remember that a denarius is a day's wage for a man. So you would need 365 of those to make ends meet. That would have been a pretty decent salary. Foot soldiers in the Roman Empire earned about 75 denarii per year. A centurion would have been a very wealthy man. And he could have funded, and it seems evident from the text here, that he did fund the entire construction of the Capernaum Jewish synagogue. Just because he could. And it's motivated by a love for the Jewish people. We don't know the exact spiritual state of this centurion, but every time a centurion is mentioned in the New New Testament, he is mentioned positively. As someone who gives serious thought 
to the claims of God and is at least a God-fearer, someone who has come into contact with the Jewish faith, what we would call our Old Testament, and is encountering the, the, the reality of God and faith, at least, or the fear of God is present in this Gentile pagan, so much so that he loves the Jewish people. But I want to say that when the king marvels at faith, he does not marvel at misplaced faith. Misplaced faith is in verse 5. Did you see um, in verses 4 and 5 what the Jewish men say about the centurion? They say that he is worthy to have you do this for him. I just want to say here that this is what obviously motivated the Jewish elders. They trusted in what they could see. But faith is not about what we can see. Faith does not relate back to actions or things that we accomplish. And I want to say that it is not based on our works. And I think that Jesus did not go with these men because he believed that the man was worthy, but because he saw the need and he was compassionate. And in his authority, he determined what he would do. He was not moved or swayed by the accomplishments or the perceived worthiness of how one man regards another man or one woman would regard another woman or in any which combination. Jesus does not look at the scale of human accomplishments and determine who he helps. Jesus, in his sovereign love, goes to those who are in need, and that's exactly what he does. You'll see that in verse 6, Jesus went with them. And it's not recorded here many questions or any questions that he asks. He simply goes. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to Jesus. And this is interesting. He had sent, the centurion had sent the Jewish elders to Jesus saying, Lord, would you please come and heal my servant? Now, I don't know if in the distance that it took for the Jewish elders and Jesus to get to the house, that word had gotten to the centurion what the elders had said about him, and so he just feels terrible. It's not what he expected and not what he asked them to say at all. But what would a centurion have in common with, or how could he relate to a Jewish holy man? He had sent the most spiritual men that he knew to go take care of it. Now, he's having second thoughts about even asking this holy one, this man who performs miracles that he has heard about in Capernaum, to come in to his home. And so instead of sending emissaries, he sends his friends to Jesus who deliver a message to him. And this is where we see amazing faith. We often sing about amazing grace, but did you know that Jesus regards certain faith as amazing? Here's what Jesus hears. The friends come and they say, Lord, do not trouble yourself. This is the message of the centurion, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. 
Right? Here, here is the background to the centurion's inner working and what he was thinking about, this very noble soldier. On the first place, if we're looking at amazing faith, we can see that it confesses the lordship of Jesus. Amazing faith confesses the lordship of Jesus. And this is what is embodied in that word Lord. Now, it could just mean sir, but because of everything that comes after in his estimation of himself and his estimation of Jesus, I think this word Lord is more loaded with the understanding of the one who controls and has authority over the affairs of this life. And as the friends continue to talk to Jesus, he even says to the Lord, please do not trouble yourself. It means he, he thought about what he was asking Jesus to do, and he thought, I don't want to annoy or agitate this man of God. I don't count myself as deserving of him even coming to my home. And that's the second thing about amazing faith. As Jesus sees what this man is saying, amazing faith views self with humility. It views self with humility. You can see that the centurion's message continues in verse 7. He said, I, I did not presume myself to come to you. He says, I, in verse 6b, that second part, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Remember that the Jewish elders have a system in place that bases human accomplishment as what gives you merit or earns you favor with someone else. And they regarded the centurion as worthy. They regarded him as having accomplished enough stuff to certainly be worthy in the eyes of God. He loved the Jewish nation. He gave money to God's building. But what Jesus regards as amazing is the humility of this man. The centurion would have known that Jesus cast out demons. He would have known, even in that region of Capernaum, that Jesus had gone to places where lepers were, and that he'd embraced them and healed them. He would have known that Peter, Simon, one of the local fishermen, his mother who was sick in her home, the report would have been brought back to him that she was brought up out of her sickbed. He would have learned about the miraculous catch of fish. And in his mind, he's thinking, these things defy convention. These things are not a part of my ordered, structured life. But in order to do these things, that man is greater than I. And he is in authority. And that's the third point. He trusts the power of Jesus. He trusts the power of Jesus. Verses 7 and 8 are so interesting. He says, say the word and let my servant be healed. He trusts in the inherent power of Jesus' words that he may simply speak and reality would be changed. He's heard so many reports about it. He's counting on Jesus doing that for him. He doesn't think he deserves it, but he trusts Jesus. It's interesting in verse 8, he says, for I too am a man under authority. I've thought about that all week. I too am a man under authority. Remember, his message is to Jesus. 
On the one hand, I think he sees Jesus as a man under authority himself. And who was the authority that Jesus submitted to while he was on this earth? It was God the Father. He said, all the works of the Father, I do. It was his delight to obey the Father. And even now, he is submitting to his Lord and Father in heaven as he continues on this earth to embody all the kingdom values. And I'm not denying his divinity. Please don't hear that. But I'm saying as a man, Jesus walked this earth with perfect obedience. And a man under authority who is accustomed to authority can spot somebody else who is walking under authority and who does authority in the right way. Authority is such a tricky thing. You give someone authority and tell them they're in charge and it can immediately go to their head. But this man, the centurion, was humble enough to recognize how authority works. He was under authority himself and he delegated authority and understood how it works. He said to his servant, go. He said to another servant, come. He said to a servant, do this, and they would do it. I think that happened because he was a trustworthy man. I think it happens because like he was loving on the outside, he was loving within his own home. None of those things make you right with God. It's just an aside to think about authority in those terms. But he appeals to Jesus based on Jesus's authority. And he says, you don't have to come to my home. You could simply say the word. And it's remarkable how Jesus responds. In verse 9, he says to the crowd around him, turns around and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It's not that he hasn't found any faith in Israel, but he found amazing faith. It says that Jesus marveled. There's only one other place that it said Jesus marvels, and that's at the unbelief of his hometown. And now here in Luke 7, he marvels not at a Jewish person who has received the word and the oracles and the testimony of God, but at a Gentile. And his heart is moved. This is Jesus again in his humanity. He could be surprised by people. He could be amazed at what he found. It doesn't deny his divinity, but it puts into place who he chose to be and what he chose to do as he interacted with people. But his divinity is this. It doesn't even say a word about how he said, heal the servant or may your servant receive life again. He simply goes on, and when everyone goes back, they find that the servant is well. The focus of this section is this faith. And as the king goes out in a place where nobody expected him to go, he's finding that God is at work in people beyond the scope of what anyone was expecting. And this is something I want to encourage you with before we go on to point two quickly, is that God goes into areas and works in people's lives when you feel like everything is falling apart. We may expect to find faith in people whose lives are going well, 
But did you know God is working on people whose lives are falling apart and creating faith in himself so that he may be glorified and they may know him better? This is our God. Now, Jesus does something else. He is moved by grief in the next encounter. And this one's a bit shorter. I'll I'll go through it a little more quickly. Verse 11, soon afterward, now we don't know exactly how much time, but soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd with him. Now, from Capernaum, where Jesus was, to Nain, it would have been about a 20-mile trek southwest. Nain was a little village. It did have a gate. It It doesn't say it had walls, but it had a gate that indicated where to enter the village. And it would have had leaders who sat at that gate and were in control and led the village. It was on a hillside. On the other side of the hillside was another village called Shunem. And that's where the prophet Elisha at one time brought a young boy back to life. The people of Nain would have known that story. It would have been a regional miracle that happened there generations before. But they're off the beaten track and nobody really goes to Nain. As Jesus arrives, it's at the same time that a great crowd is coming out of the gate. And it says, verse 12, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So here's the scene. After this 20-mile trek, Jesus and his disciples, and a great crowd that they've brought over that 20-mile hike, now encounter another crowd coming out towards them. You could imagine loud wailing, crying. There's a widow who is following the stretcher, the beer from the bearers that's going out of the city. People are lamenting, praying, crying. And Jesus is moved by grief. One of the things that it says about Jesus is that he had compassion. We'll get to that in just a moment. But why does he have compassion? It says that this man who had died and was being carried out was the only son of his mother, who was a widow. In other words, she has nothing left. There's no son to carry on the family name anymore. She doesn't have a husband. And the prospects for her future are looking rather grim. Jesus is not here by accident. And when I said at the beginning that our lives sometimes go off script, Jesus never goes off script. Going to Nain, although he would be questioned by John the Baptist soon about why he's doing certain things like this, he will send back the message that I am healing people I am having compassion on people. I am showing mercy to people. And do not be offended in me. Jesus' mission was to advance his kingdom through these compassionate acts of his power. To highlight that this is what the kingdom is about. It's going to your enemies and it's loving them. It's going to the outcasts and having compassion on them. What is this word compassion? We read that in verse 13. The Greek word is splanknizomai just a fun one to say. All right, it comes from the noun splanknon, which means your intestines or guts. Did you know that? When you say I have compassion on you, you're talking about your guts, at least if you're speaking in Greek, all right? 
Why does it say that? Well, we have, we have a sense of this in the English language. You know, you could just say, you know, I loved you with all my heart. Right? We, we typically don't say I love you with all my kidneys. But it's kind of the same thing when you read about it in the Bible. There's a sense that what we feel within our body parts, our inner organs, is related to what we express on the outside. That's why you might feel if you fall in love that you have little butterflies flying around in there in your, your stomach, all right? All right? This is a sense of deep love, deep mercy, and compassion that moves him to action. So Jesus goes up to the woman, and he tells her, don't cry, all right? Most people... They may say things like that, and it's, it's well-intended, but it's one of the worst things you can say. Obviously, one of the things that we need to do is mourn. We need to weep. But Jesus alone can walk up to somebody who is in the middle of their deepest grief and tell them with authority, don't cry. And this is where we begin to see the king's power. Compassion leads to his power on display. And as the king then turns from the woman, he walks up to the bearers, and he puts his hand on that stretcher. Now, immediately, this would have been a no-no. In Leviticus 19, anybody who touches a dead body or anything that a dead thing is on becomes immediately unclean, according to the ceremonial law. But Jesus isn't concerned about becoming unclean. Wherever we see Jesus encountering people with leprosy, with issues of blood, or people who have died. He does not become unclean. They become clean. The power goes out from him, and he doesn't lose any of it. Nor is he infected or affected by their dirt or uncleanness or sin. This is amazing, and it's another evidence of the power of Jesus. Jesus goes to that stretcher, and he puts his hand on it, and what's remarkable is that no one says, what are you doing? Right in a Jewish funeral, it's not like someone could just walk up and interrupt it. Nobody said, who are you? What are you doing? No, there's an authority about Jesus. When he walks into a, a room, when he walks into a space, when he sees something going on, he can immediately enter into it. And what you might feel is an off-script moment, when Jesus is there, he's in control. He's an authority. And he, he says to that dead man, who typically when it's mentioned here as a young man, as he calls him, would have been between 25 and 40. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the man got up and he started speaking. <clears throat> this is the amazing thing. And I wish the Bible recorded what he said. You know, some people do that. They just wake up and they just start talking. It takes me a little while. But this man had been dead. He wakes up and starts speaking. If I had been one of the guys holding the stretcher, I think I might have dropped it at that point. And I, I wonder if this is why the Bible tells us that Jesus gave the man to his mother. I don't know if that means he caught him or if he just put his arm around him and walked him over to his mother. But imagine that scene. Suddenly, there is no more professional mourning. There is no more personal grief. The king has displayed his power. And you know what? Just one thing to note here. There is no mention of faith. 
There's no mention of faith. So often in our, our culture today, you watch those lousy faith healers on TV. I'm coming. <laughs> and what do they, they tell you? That you've got to have enough faith, and if you just have enough faith, you can be healed. That's a bunch of baloney. And it's blasphemous. Do you know why? Because in the New Testament, the healing power of God is not connected primarily to human faith. It's connected to the divine sovereign Lord. So sometimes miracles were accompanied by faith. But a lot of times they were not. But I will tell you this. Salvation must come by faith. Salvation must come by faith. So as we end today, I want to ask you a question. How will you respond to the king? There are three typical responses that we see in this text. The first is by the crowd. The crowd in verses 16 and 17, they have several reactions, but I summarize it this way. I'm not sure what to make of you, but I see evidence of God doing something. Right? It, it's never necessarily the personal interaction with either the disciples at this point in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus focuses on or that Luke, the author, focuses on. He focuses instead on the crowd. What will the crowd do with Jesus? And you could typically think of that as all of you. As a crowd, how would you respond? Well, these people were afraid. The text says fear seizes them. They saw what happened and they just weren't sure what to make of it. But they were in awe of anyone who could raise someone from the dead. Now this has happened before. Remember in Shunem, just a a village over the hill, Elisha the prophet had raised a young boy from the dead. But it's recorded that he prayed to God, God, would you do this? Jesus just walked up to this young man and said, young man, I say to you, get up. No one talks that way. And so they conclude, God, you should be glorified for this. That's the right response of the crowd. They think a great prophet has arisen among us. That's what some were saying. And that God, God himself has visited his people. Now in all these healthy, right responses, none of them go down to the level of personal response that's needed. It's okay as a crowd And I think it's easy within the crowd to get caught up in a moment and to react to an amazing spectacle that you've seen or some great act of mercy. But personally, the question is, what will you do with the king? The elders of that Jewish city of Capernaum, I summarize their response. If they were pushed to a response, what will you do with Jesus to this? I'm worthy of you. I'm worthy of you. Now, my friends, this is not the right response. But I wonder how many of you here might fall back on your attendance at this church, even when the virus is threatening, your money that you give, no matter what. And if people would push and find out what's motivating you, what's driving you in your faith to God, you might say, well, I'm doing these things that he's asked me to do. You may not use the word worthy of yourself, 
but you're counting on. In the end, that obedience will get you somewhere. My friends, that's not the right response. And that kind of faith is misplaced. And it doesn't, catches the, it doesn't catch the attention of Jesus at all. Instead, I want to point out again that soldier. The soldier, the centurion. Remember, my friends, what he said. He said, I am not worthy of you. I submit to you. Please save. And my friends, if this is what you would say to the Lord Jesus today, this is the faith that Jesus marvels at. That people would turn away from themselves. That they would see the suffering in their lives, the unplanned events, the off-script months, and say to the Lord, I see myself for who I am, and I can't depend on myself. I'm sinful, Lord. I can't even ask you to come into my home. But I submit to you. I recognize you for who you are. You're, you're the Lord. Now, please, save. Save me. My friends, will you, will you give your response today like that soldier? Will you turn? Will you trust? Those of you who know the Savior, will you submit to him again in your life? And I would say whatever's going on, even as Fred prayed, we are here to listen, to pray with you, to talk with you, and to help you in any way. And may God continue to be glorified through Jesus as he continues to go to us, advancing his kingdom, stripping away the darkness and its power, and bringing the light of the kingdom of God. Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for the consideration that you've brought us in Luke chapter 7 of the king going to these suffering people and making decisions that led them to a greater understanding of his kingdom, of his compassionate power. We need you today, Lord Jesus, to meet our need and our suffering and to draw our attention away from our own selves and back to you. We love you. We ask you to continue your work. Help us to look to you now with faith. In Jesus' name, amen.